Hi, I'm Ilana Ween, and you're listening to Just Leading, where we're thinking differently about leadership within and beyond the Jewish world. Each episode, we talk to someone who's doing that in their life's work, someone who is redefining what it means to be a leader in their community. But it's almost like God is a man, religious leaders are men. That male narrative voice that we've read for 3,000 years really creates a very flourishing environment for this kind of inequity to persist. From generation to generation, progress is possible and even evident. Nobody knows that better than Schiffer Bronsnick, who has been organizing for women's rights for decades, fighting for more equitable treatment of women in the workplace. And her vision of who she's fighting for has expanded over the years. Before sitting down with Shifra, I was curious to hear what struck my co-hosts about her, what they were curious about. So I sat down with Alana Kaufman to get her thoughts. Like I've loved working with Shifra and, you know, Shifra, I think really in all the most um, sensitive and acute and purposeful ways, like appreciates kind of the limitations of her whiteness Mm. as someone who like is trying to hold a complex space around advocating for women and recognizing like women come in all kinds of dimensions and identities and facets. You know, Shifra, her reach is broad. Let's dive in. Well, good morning, Shifra. Good morning, Ilana. How are you doing? Very happy to be talking with you about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> so I'm in a great mood. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, the idea, you know, with this podcast that we put together with Alana Kaufman and Golly Cooks is to really focus on the intersection of leadership and equity. And what does it look like to be an equitable leader? And you're somebody who's really championed this work in the Jewish community and beyond. And I think one of the first things I wonder about, as I know I'm personally as a leader experiencing a lot of fatigue and a need to reset and recharge. How do you stick with this over time? That's a great question. The question of, you know, certain problems feel so challenging in that no matter how much you're working on them, you're still not seeing the breakthroughs that you want to see. So I think it's really important, first of all, to really recognize what has changed, where we have actually made a real difference. And we really have made some differences. And as we have had an impact, it's also been revealed some of the deep roots. You know, I'm speaking about this right now from a US perspective, the deep roots of domination in our culture, starting from the initial genocide, (laughs) the deep roots that slavery has had, the enslavement of other human beings on our country, and patriarchy. And so all of those combined really reflects a culture of domination. So the breakthroughs that we've had have been miraculous in some ways, given that deep culture of domination, and they've revealed how much more is left to do. I don't know when we're gonna complete this, but all I know is I am determined and I will prevail. I really think that that has to be part of the mantra of our movement. I love now when I listen to the movement for Black Lives talking about the way their work is evolving, often they'll start the updates they're giving by saying this is a 25-year project. (laughs) So that's far from what we think in terms of annual 
accomplishments. We have to look at overall accomplishments. Hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about where your kind of awareness of that, where it comes from and how it's, you know, evolved kind of your, you know, to share a little bit about kind of your earlier story and how maybe that's informed this approach. You know, I grew up in a Orthodox Jewish family. And when I was nine, it was 1963. <laughs> and that was a time when, you know, we have the saying that we quote Marion Wright Edelman saying, you can't be what you can't see. Trust me that in 1963, as an Orthodox Jewish girl in a Jewish day school, there was so much that wasn't apparent to me. My neighbors got a world book encyclopedia. It was a hardback sets of books. And I was allowed to come and visit these books and look into them. So I remember something very vividly, which is that when I was nine, I announced that I plan to be the first woman president of the United States. And of course, I was mocked ferociously <laughs> by some of the boys in the class, especially. And I went home and that weekend I was looking through the World Book Encyclopedia. I was feeling a little down about the reaction to my announcement. And I started looking and I found this article about suffragettes and women fighting to get the right to vote. I understood that I was seeing and experiencing something about the limitations that were constructed by gender for women. And at that time, it was before we understood about gender nonconforming or ending gender binaries. So at that time, it was the ways in which women were constricted by gender. And I had this emergent idea that I was fighting for something for women. I didn't have the language for it. So I've now moved from being a suffragette to being a feminist, a feminist to being a deeply intersectional feminist who understands that gender roles are more fluid and gender identities are more fluid. And uh, what I love about feminism is I've always believed that it's about transformation. It's not about how is important as part of it, but it's really about how the access we give to all people to fulfill their aspirations and to follow their vocation and to exceed expectations because that's what they want to do, not because they're trying to prove something to others about being worthy. All of that is part of the feminist transformation that I believe is about fighting to benefit everyone, and that includes men. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you brought that philosophy to your work with um, advancing women professionals in the Jewish community. And I think your approach to advancing women's um, professionals and how, how you looked to have that carry on its legacy was so unique in both the Jewish community and the wider community. I'd love to just hear more about it. So when I think about advancing women professionals in the Jewish community, one of the issues that we were clear on is that we wanted to be a catalyst for change. And so much of what we, what we did was assessed through that lens. Is this something that's putting other people in motion to keep looking at the challenges we have and making the changes that we need? So we worked really on every level. We did work on the individual level because we realized there were so many amazing women out there who had so much to contribute 
And while we didn't want them to be sole stars in the sky, we wanted them to be part of a constellation. <laughs> we wanted them to become visible. You know, I live in New York City and the stars aren't really so visible in New York because of all the neon lights. And I think in the world that I came into with advancing women professionals in the Jewish community, the Jewish world, it was like the women, the neon of the cisgender men was making it hard to see all the stars that were really there or all this, you know, um, but I think our power comes when we, when we act together. I think that we want individual power and leadership in order to build collective power that could share leadership and make a difference for everyone. I always used to joke and say, I thought there should be a swipe card that everybody got at birth. And they all had to do a certain amount of caregiving. They all had to do a certain amount of leadership work. They all had to have a certain amount of joy and pleasure. <laughs> and I sometimes imagine about that, what it would be like if we actually believed what Meg Wheatley, who's a long time, um, one of the first major recognized women leadership theorists who wrote Leadership and the New Science. At one point in her work, what she concluded is leadership is about people being able to have a chance to help. And I think if you change from thinking leading as if it's a position, uh, and instead came to understand it as a way of being, as a willingness to step up when a voice needed to be heard or an action needs to be taken as willingness to collaborate. But at the heart of it is, how can I help? How can I make a difference? And then I'll do what I have to do to make that difference in a certain way that nobody should feel they have to go it alone. It's really impossible to make deep changes that we have to make alone. And if you talk to many CEOs, as I have in my career, loneliness is one of the key attributes <laughs> of leadership for them because they feel the buck stops here. I have to take care of it. I don't believe the buck ever stops with one person. I think we all have to share in the big work of making our culture a place in which everybody can thrive. Ultimately, we also looked at changing some of the systems that had to be changed. For example, getting paid parental leave to become more of a norm, getting paid family care to become more of a norm, looking at flexible work arrangements, which were very deeply resisted by people who had traditional leadership positions. And yet it's so interesting because as soon as our country needs people to be working at home, not only are we asking them to work at home, but we're asking parents to take care of their children at the same time and by the way, to homeschool them. So when we want to make something change, we seem to be able to do it, even though it's had a lot of hardships on people and we don't take those hardships into account sufficiently. But when we just hear about changing systems, it's like, no, we can't do that. And so we try to really help people turn those no's into experiments in real time in which they could play with ways of changing structures that would allow more people to have the flexibility to both work and also lead good lives. How do you think that that work and kind of your approach to it might, might have evolved or be different if you were to have launched it today, for example? Well, I think that um, one of the things we knew is that we always have to be relaunching. You know, uh, we've talked sometimes, Alana, about what the role of different generations is in this kind of work. 
And part of it is that it's human nature to always look at the new generation and what their values are and what their vision is and what their aspirations are. And those tend to be very undiluted. They're very strong and robust because it's like the new youth generation. And what I think about is how those predilections, that the predilections and interests and passions of the next generation end up coloring an entire era. So one of the things that we did at Advancing Women that I think is fairly unusual is we were succeeding very well. We were widely recognized. We were doing good and important work. And in about 2012, this is an organization that I started as an initiative. It was never meant to be an organization, but it became one. And we started our work in 2001. And in 2012, I went to my board and I said, there's much progress we've made, but there's a lot of room for accelerated progress, but it's only going to come about because all the people we're working with take seriously their commitment to make a change and to make a difference. If it's all going to be outsourced, I don't believe in the outsourcing of leadership. And I feel very often that's what happens. Oh, in our community, let's give it to such and such. Let's give it to this organization. Instead of thinking, how could we collectively share and tackling the challenge and in making progress on it? So what we did is we developed what we called our exist strategy. We said, we're giving notice to our network, to all the women whose talents we've cultivated, to all the men who we've engaged as allies, as champions, as fellow travelers, to all the organizations that we've sought to influence. And over the course of time, in those couple of years, we said by 2015, AWP will not exist as a standalone organization. But the work continues. The mission continues. How do I want to more broadly reach out to work with others on these issues? And how do I want to make sure that these kind of changes are sustained? Because once the pilot project is over, the experiment is over, or the leader leaves that arena and somebody else comes in who's not as passionate, Changes you make could easily go away unless there's some people working to sustain those changes and to hold people accountable for sustaining those changes. I also want to say that it's really important to step back in order to let other people step up because it's the natural inclination of other people. If there's something that's difficult, if it's a matter of having conflict, it's, it's easy if there's an appointed person to give it to, but it's never going to be as effective a solution as you have when many diverse people feel the responsibility to look at this issue, to take it on, to engage in some kind of collective effort. And that's the space that we created. I mean, there's a whole Facebook group. There's all this great work on men as allies. And most importantly, during this period for me, has been the real growing impact of Jews of Color in terms of really challenging our community to fully embrace the opportunity to dismantle white supremacy within our organizations and within ourselves, to support and champion the leadership of Jews of color, and to learn from their work 
what we have to do as white people in our work. And that has been just tremendous. And the leadership of women within that field, there are many great men too, but the leadership of women has been absolutely powerful and transformative. I know that you're also very involved both in the Jewish community and the wider community through Auburn, for example, and working in more of a multi-faith kind of space. And so I'm curious where you're seeing the role of faith in both inspiring and grounding the work and also ways in which it could be um, challenging and in and, and that, that kind of dynamic. So I'm curious how you, you wrestle with and make sense of that piece of things. It's interesting that you say that because one of the really powerful changes that we're seeing now, first of all, is the ways in which before many people thought faith was the tr- tradition. <laughs> so faith almost made it harder to make changes. As an example, I always used to say when I was working on Jewish women's leadership, it's really hard in an environment where every week Jews read and discuss the Torah. (laughs) And so much of the Torah is in the male voice, male protagonists as the main people, male commentators. And one of the reasons the thought leadership of women in the Jewish community and women rabbis in particular has been so important is it creates a new terrain to hear women's voices, whether it's through women's commentaries and women's teachings and the amazing powerhouse women rabbis who are operating in so many realms. And that's been really important. What they have really done is made visible all the different ways in which faith rootedness can be very radical, could be very progressive in its vision, could be very passionate about bringing forth the best values that our faith offers us. And I know they offer many possibilities that we have to act on. So whether it's looking at the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which emerged from the leadership of Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, whether it's seeing the amazing ways that faith leaders collaborated to make clear how a senator like Raphael Warnock was drawing on his faith in a way that was most appropriate to have a vision for goodness, for what the public good could be in our country, or whether it's listening to Rabbi Sharon Browse, who's become one of the key architects of this movement, or Reverend Tracy Blackman or Reverend Yvette Flander. These are all people who are part of this multi-faith movement for justice. And I think that we're starting to see that we've kept faith sort of siloed. And in this period of time where, as you said, our resilience was so challenged by this very difficult administration that it's very nice not to even have to name 45. I think that we have really come to recognize that when a James Stockdale says something like, I know I'm going to prevail, part of it comes from this faith-rooted place. I think that what we've learned from a lot of our connections more deeply with Jews of color and people of color is 
We could create our own rituals, but they also go deeply back to our ancestors and looking back at our ancestors and how they prevailed over such sorrows and challenges is helping us develop the kind of rituals, healing, restorative justice, that is going to make such a powerful difference. And we've taken it out of the pews and put it right with the people, in the people's hands, and have also started to demystify in some way what it takes to be a faith leader. I also think it's believing we're accountable to something bigger than ourselves about what it means to be good. We are all responsible to make sure we have systems and structures that support people in raising the next generation. And it's that generation that's going to take care of all of us when we're elders. That partially comes out of faith and of realizing that everything that was created on this planet was given to us to care for. That includes ourselves, it includes our family, it includes our community. And it also includes other people's communities. And until we are certain that the people who are most in need have what they need, we're never going to be the people that we, we could be. We're only going to become those people when it's as instinctive as anything to step up and say, how can I help? I'm wondering how, as a leader do you ask for help? Kind of how do you identify where you need help and support and, and care? And, and how do you go about, about that? One of the ways I've gotten help is that I don't believe that it's up to me alone. I believe I have to do my share, but I truly believe that unless everybody steps up and steps in, we're not going to have the kind of world that we want to have. And it's why I've been so influenced by the notion that networks could make such a difference because you never know where the wisdom is going to come from. And that includes making sure we hear the dissenting voices and the Jewish community sometimes, oh, if you're too dissenting or skeptical, you're a problem. We have to view those people as part of the solution. Tell us what we don't want to hear. <laughs> I have a beautiful community of friends. I'm very blessed. I'm not that romantic about romance, but I'm very romantic about friendship. <laughs> and I hope that my partner, Michael, isn't offended by that, but um, I'm very romantic about friendship. I, I, I just find it to be a very life-giving way of having what I call chosen family. <laughs> like the family you build of your friends for me is very important. And um, now it's been really fun to be able to talk more with my two children who are both in their 20s and my son and my daughter and really go to them with questions and concerns and issues and not feel like, oh, I have to protect them from feeling like I don't have the answers. It's like I could be open and saying, what do you think? And challenging them. In fact, I was once forbidden from continuing to challenge their friends at the shopper's dinner table because they said, mom, you have to realize, like, you're scaring our friends. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Ilana, it's been such a joy. What I found most inspiring from my conversation with Shifra is how she has continued to embrace connecting with and bringing in diverse voices to her feminist and activist work to ensure that she's continuing to evolve and center the voices of those most impacted. 
I hope that folks listening to our conversation will be encouraged to reflect on how they are actively seeking out new voices and relationships in their work as equitable leaders. Our goal on Just Leading is to continue making you think differently about leadership. Tune in next week for our final episode, a conversation with President and CEO of the Weinberg Foundation, Rachel Garbo Monroe. And we get quirky, which I embrace. When you hire really smart people, you get quirky. So we have a lot of fun because we embrace each other in what we love and what we do. Just Leading is supported by the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. It's produced by Wonder Media Network and Ariella Markowitz. For more information on the organizations we work for, check out the Jews of Color Initiative at jewsofcolorinitiative.org, SRE Network at srenetwork.org, and Leading Edge at leadingedge.org.